We open up God's Word as His inspired and errant Word to us in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. As God's people who are both formed by the gospel and fueled by the gospel gathering together, we get to go to His Word. We're doing the things that He has said which He will be with us in, in gathering together and in opening His Word. And so we turn to Hebrews chapter 10 with great expectation that the Lord has spoken and desires to continue to speak to His people who are gathered together. So as the people of God in Hebrews chapter 10, let's hear the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. This is God's Word. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sacrificed and has outraged the Spirit of grace. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for creating us in Christ Jesus to do good works. We know with your word open before us that it's your word that speaks to us to equip us to do those good works, to love and know you more and to love and serve the people around us. Would you please help us this morning be equipped by your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chin music. I'm talking about music that comes out of your chin physically. It's a baseball term, or that's how I'm using it. Chin music. It's where a pitcher takes the ball and he throws it really close to, say, the chin or the face of a batter, which if you're a batter is is a little bit less than comfortable. Think that it's done to give a little bit of humility to someone who's swinging the bat in the plate. To establish a sense of control and dominance. Like, who, who owns this area right up here? Is it this batter? Or is it me, the pitcher? And if it's me, the pitcher, then sometimes I need you to back away a little bit. So I throw a ball pretty fast, close to your face. Now, it might scare a batter to receive some chin music from a pitcher. might get them in a place where they, they do want to back off and get further away. I think it should in some ways. Because if you know baseball at all, people get hit all the time. So there's something that's more serious that could happen Should they not heed the warning? Should they not take on a sense of humility as they approach the pitcher's plate? It's a warning, chin music. 
with more serious that could come should not some sort of action change. And it seems as if the Hebrews author this morning at the end of chapter 10 throws us some chin music. Doesn't do this to intimidate. It's unlike baseball in that way. There's no sense of trying to be domineering and, and intimidating to his audience. He's not trying to show his control over all the people that are around, that, that are listening. But he is trying to warn. And he is trying to say and, and get us to the awareness that, that if we're not heeding the warning, then something much, much more serious than just some chin music is going to come. And so the warning might bring fear, but something much more serious could happen. As we talked about last week, the day draws near. The day, the day of judgment, the day of dread, that probably on our ears doesn't fall with enough weight and heaviness. This is a day of salvation, sure, for the people of God. But it's also a day of judgment, a day of dread. It's a weighty day. And as it draws near, what do we need? Well, we need to hear the whole counsel of God's word. We need encouragement. That's what he said last week. Stir one another up. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We need encouragement, but we need a specific kind of encouragement sometimes. And this time the author thinks the kind of encouragement that the people need as the day draws near is a warning. So Hebrews 10 is one of the great warning passages of the scripture that needs to rightly humble the audience. Rightly humble those who, who hear it, that they might receive it. The author at the end of Hebrews chapter 10 writes that we might hold fast, that the believers might hold fast to, they might believe in, hope in, fully know Jesus as better to both escape judgment and to endure suffering that's all around them. Hold fast to Jesus as better. He's worth clinging to as he's better than the ease and comfort that maybe leaving your profession of faith behind might bring because that brings sin and judgment to follow. He's worth clinging to in suffering because the suffering will give way, but the inheritance that he has promised will never give way. And so the warning helps, helps encourage believers, help prepare for the day that does draw near. It's necessary to help the readers hold fast to Jesus is better. That's why the author gives it. And so after the huge explanation that he's given in the heart of the book of Hebrews about how Jesus is better and the ways that he is better, after these exhortations to action that he just gave at the beginning of chapter 10 as he called the, the people of God to action, to draw near, to hold fast, to consider how, after that, seems as if some of the exhortations that he gave were, were going after some of the temptations that they would have had. Maybe to fall away a little bit. Maybe to loosen their grip on the things of the gospel Maybe even to not meet together because of what it might cost them. And, and because of that, he, he gives some exhortations and then he warns. Verse 26 picks up, as the author says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. I love how the author doesn't just take shots at his audience, but he, he includes himself here. We. He's one of them, and it seems as if maybe he has this intimate relationship with them, and he, he puts himself right in, in their midst and says, we, if we do this. And he does this because he, he, he assumes some knowledge on their part because he knows them. Knows them well enough to know that they, they have professed their faith in Christ. They have displayed some loyalty to Jesus. In other words, they're not walking in ignorance of the things of God or the gospel. He assumes these things. He knows that they are true of his audience. Now, I don't know that that's true for everyone here. Most of you, if you've been following with us in the book of Hebrews, we, we can assume some of that knowledge, that you're not walking in ignorance, at least from what you've heard. 
But I don't assume that anyone knows the gospel, and we don't want to assume the gospel at all. The gospel says that though we are sinners created to be like God, we have rejected Him, rebelled against Him, and we deserve judgment from Him. That's what we deserve. But that God has provided a way through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus, to be made right, to be reconciled to God. That if we turn from our sins and put our trust in this Son, we can have eternal life. So now we are all kind of in the same boat that they are, that we can assume some sort of gospel knowledge here. But it's likely that this audience, that some of the audience are on the edge of leaving that gospel behind, of going a different direction, leaving Christianity altogether. Perhaps it's not too unlike the Galatians, who he says, uh, you're, in, you're in trouble. Like you're, you seem like you're leaving the gospel to another gospel. And he says, there's actually not another gospel. And so when you're leaving this gospel and you're turning to another one, you're actually going to a non-gospel. Can't do anything for you. Can't save you. You're not just leaving one, you're rejecting the only one. You're not just leaving the gospel, you're rejecting the only God, the only way of salvation. And the audience here in the book of Hebrews seems to be tempted with something like that. Tempted with leaving Jesus and his work behind. In other words, maybe the idea that would have been culturally acceptable around them, that would have been the norm around them, that the cross is folly, maybe start to creep into their minds and their hearts. Maybe the idea that the cross is a stumbling block if they have this Jewish descent. Hey, this is a stumbling block for you. We don't have crucified messiahs. We have one that comes and reigns and rules. Perhaps the idea that the cross... That Jesus is foolish as a Savior and Messiah has crept into their minds and into their, their midst as a body of believers. Maybe they're leaving to return to Judaism. Maybe they're, they're thinking, perhaps, I, mean, I want to keep God, I, I, I want Him, but I'm going to leave this Jesus behind. And it doesn't seem by a lot of the people around them, if there was a Jewish audience, a lot of their families would have accepted them. You keep God, you leave Jesus, you're still with us. A lot of the culture around them, you keep God, you leave Jesus, we're okay with that as well. And so it seems as if they might, maybe they're trying to keep God and get rid of the stuff that might be a little bit more culturally offensive. But if you were to say that leaving Jesus and keeping God is acceptable, then I think you would be off biblically. That is that leaving Jesus, leaving his gospel is a rejection of God, is a rejection of his righteousness, that a, a rejection of any part of the gospel or any part of Jesus is a rejection of all of the gospel and all of God. Rejecting Jesus is a rejection of, of his person, of his work. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting him as, as Hebrews is taught to him as the great high priest. A source of eternal redemption. The one who makes propitiation for sins. Turning away the wrath of God that, des- that we deserve as sinners. It's rejecting Him as the one who can cleanse our conscience all the way down. It's rejecting Him as one who can actually and finally and fully take away our sins. It's rejecting Him as the once for all sacrifice for sins. It's rejecting Him as the mediator and guarantor of the new covenants where He gives new hearts. And Hebrews has been arguing this whole book, what? Jesus is better. So sinning deliberately, this idea of sinning deliberately in verse 26 is an outright rejection of Jesus as better. It's not holding on to Jesus as better. And so the warning here is a warning against thinking and believing that anything is better than Jesus. If you do that, you are rejecting him. 
and eternal redemption, and propitiation, and this once-for-all sacrifice, and the new covenants. You're receiving that there is an idea that I can have another way of redemption, another sacrifice for sins, another way of approaching God, another hope. That this is what the author is talking about when he says deliberate sins, go on sinning, deliberate. He's seen in the context, what does he say? That there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Now, the author has been painstakingly careful about how he's described this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. One author says it this way, that the multiplicity of priests and sacrifices of the Levitical system has now been superseded by the one priest and the one sacrifice. So to reject this sacrifice is to be left with no sacrifice at all. And he has been clear about how Jesus, as a priest and as a sacrifice, supersedes all that has come before him. And so to reject him as great high priest, to reject him as sacrifice, is to leave you without a priest and without a sacrifice. Sinning deliberately is rejection of the once for all sacrifice from Jesus. And in verse 28, he calls such people adversaries of God. You go on sinning deliberately, you're an adversary, you're an enemy of God. You're not in and just kind of struggling through things. You're an adversary of God, you're an enemy of God. And the reference, one author continues, is to those who move from open belief to open unbelief who, having professed Christ as Savior and Lord, now turn their back on that profession and repudiate Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. Where there was once profession of Jesus and Him as the better one, the one who is the sacrifice for sin, the one who takes away our sin and the wrath of God that remains upon us, the one who has given us eternal redemption, the source of our salvation, now there is unbelief. And he goes on to say, the end of verse 29, that such a one has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sacrificed, by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. That goes much further of an explanation of what is actually going on here. Sinning deliberately and to continue to go on sinning deliberately is a total Trinitarian rejection. It's a defection from the things of God spurning the sun, trampling him underfoot, trampling not just his person, but his work. All that you've done, we're counting it it as meaningless. It's an outrage of the Spirit of God. You see how this is Trinitarian rejection. It's not rejection of, of one part of one kind of belief. This is a rejection of everything. So if there's a thought of leaving Jesus or leaving the Spirit and keeping God, that is the Father, then that's off biblically. can't be done. To reject one, Father, Son, or Spirit, is to reject all. Can't have one and keep the other ones away. You don't want Jesus, but you want to keep the Father, then you've rejected the Father. Those who reject God, as it says so clearly in these verses, are judged. Verse 27, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he is sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is where abandonment of Jesus in the gospel leads. This is not, I'm keeping the Father and so I'm okay, but I'm going to reject the Son. He says, no, this is where it goes. 
Vengeance will be poured out upon you, judgment from God, because that is what is deserved. This is a dreadful judgment from God. And he kind of gives, in a sense, two groups here. He gives the group under the old covenant, under Moses. He says that they, essentially he's implying they have deserved their punishment. And then he goes to the people under the new covenant. He says, how much more have those people deserve judgment? A greater revelation, which we've seen Hebrews has given, that, that now he's, he's spoken in many ways, but now he's spoken to us through his son. We have greater revelation. He is the Son of God, greater and superior to the angels, to Moses, to Joshua, and all that came before him. We have this greater revelation, and we have this greater covenant that has been given to us through this greater sacrifice, through a greater high priest. He says, how much more do those people who reject that deserve punishment and judgment from the Lord? That is, a greater revelation yields a greater judgment. And here's what Hebrews and the Bible would have readers know that God punishes disobedience, that there is judgment for sin. And this punishment and this judgment are dreadful. And they're intended to be seen as dreadful and horrific realities. What's going on here is is not too much different than when the, the Israelites, after the Exodus, going into the Promised Land, they stand on the mountain, and God is saying, here's the law, And here's what happens if you disobey. He's announcing beforehand, here are the curses for disobeying and breaking the covenant. And they all pronounce them. This is not too different than what he's saying here. In advance, here are some vivid images of judgment that you need to know about. Here's what will happen if you reject. And we should not think it an unreasonable thing or even unloving for the Bible to speak this way. It seems like in our culture to to use Frightening images and kind of scare tactics is unwise or undone. And that's where I'll read. Jonathan Edwards says this, and I think he rightly says it. Some talk of it as an unreasonable thing to think or to fright persons to heaven. But I think it a reasonable thing to endeavor to fright persons away from hell that stand upon the brink of it and are just ready to fall into it and are senseless of its danger. I think that's what the author is doing. Indeed, I think it is very loving to warn. Part of what's inherent in warnings themselves is that we don't have to go this way. That there's a better way and that actually God desires that you go that way. It's why he gives the warning. More often than I care to remember, my wife has yelled, stop, while I'm driving oftentimes keeping me from oncoming collision. And I can remember vivid times. We're going to a job interview, taking her to a hospital to do a job interview, and, and we're a little bit late. I don't know the traffic, new city, all this kind of stuff's going on. I'm going to switch lanes because I'm weaving in and out best I can. I don't check my blind side. Who does, right? And just going. And she yells, stop. And yeah, sure enough, right beside me, here's this car that would have, it could have kind of wrecked the uh, job interview for her if I'd have done that. Stop has kept me from wrecks. And the warning is functioning like that. This is what it's doing. It's saying, stop, don't do this. This is a solemn warning of judgment, and it goes out to who? The audience is clear. These are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, chapter 3, verse 1. The author jumps in here, and he says, if we go on sinning, like so the author's including himself. He's writing this to an assembly of believers, an assembly that's not too like us. Maybe they even sat like this, hearing this letter being spoken. 
preach to them. And the threat of judgment was for them. The threat of judgment is for our ears. The warning is meant for us. My fear is with the warning is for most of us, our temptation on hearing this will say, that's really not for me. That's speaking of another category of Christian or another type of person. That's really not for me. And I think that if you do that, you're going to be missing the point of the warning. You're going to miss out on what God, I think, intends to use the warning for. I think God intends to use these warnings as the means for keeping us toward himself, keeping us in himself, keeping us holding fast to Jesus. He uses these warnings so that we might cling more tightly to Christ. And so if you say, this is not for me, then I don't think it's pushing you in the direction that the author, indeed, God, intends to push you with this warning. Maybe you're like these Hebrews, this Hebrew audience, who don't seem to be tempted to say that we know of, this warning is not for me, that must be for somebody else, but might be tempted to say that with Christianity. Now, I don't want to assume that anybody in here is not in that boat to say, like, maybe Christianity isn't for me. Maybe your life as a Christian is difficult. Maybe it's full of struggles. Maybe it's full of sufferings. And the temptation might be there that says, mate, if I, just, if I just give up, that seems like a reasonable way. Maybe that will ease all the tension in my life. Maybe that will bring some comfort. Maybe that will make things easier. Maybe I'll get that job promotion that I won't get because I'm not willing to fudge on certain numbers. Maybe I'll be able to be friends with those people I want to be friends with because I'm willing to get rid of some things that are essential to Christianity. Maybe I can have less difficulties. And I think what the warning would say is actually you're going to add to your difficulties. Maybe not here. Maybe not now. But to leave Christianity, to leave Jesus behind is to add on to your life a fearful expectation of judgment. And I would have you listen to the Bible. Stop. Stop. Don't leave the truth. Hold fast to Jesus. No matter what you're facing, he is better. And that's what Hebrews is trying to get us to cling on to. Jesus is better. Look at the severity of the judgment. It's severe. I can't, I can't tone it down. I'm not getting around this one. It's one you've got to move around one way or another. There's severe judgment for those who reject Jesus. But I would have you recall that Jesus jumped in front of that judgment for you. To remove it from you. So that you would never have to face it for eternity. Don't leave that Jesus. Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor in the 1900s in, in England, pastored for over three decades. And one of the things that he said, and I quoted it when we did Hebrews chapter 6, but I'll say it again. He said that there are no passages in all of Scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than this, Hebrews 6. Passages that the devil seems to use most frequently in order to distress and trouble God's people. So I want to speak to those who might be troubled, distressed, in agony because the enemy is using this to work hard on your soul. Maybe this passage frightens you. Maybe it assaults your mind with doubt and it fills your heart with fear. Maybe it brings darkness and a cloud that it clouds any assurance that you ever had. 
Well, I want you to know that this passage is an invitation to further press into Jesus, to further know him. Maybe, perhaps it's an invitation to repent of some things in your life and to come closer to him, to trust him more in all that's going on in your life. Because here's what we know about Hebrews, is that Hebrews has told us of this great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and our temptations. And so, chapter 4, 16 says that you should draw near with confidence because you will find mercy and receive grace to help you in your time of need. Hebrews tells us of this great high priest who holds his priesthood permanently. Consequently, he is able to save, chapter 7, verse 25, to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him. Hebrews tells us of this great high priest who entered once for all into the holy places by his blood. Thus, chapter 9, verse 12, securing an eternal redemption. Hebrews tells us of Jesus who entered into these holy places once and for all to appear in the presence of God. What does he say in chapter 9, verse 24? On our behalf, and then he continues in, chapter, in verse 26, that we might have sin put away. To take away our sin. And this great high priest's desire is clearly not to push you away, but to bring you closer to himself, to make you dependent upon him for your life, for your eternity. And the author is trying to warn us so that we would press into him and hold fast. Don't let this warning passage be used, believer, to distress and to trouble you. Let it be used to push you to draw near to Jesus. Let it be used to make you even more dependent than you were when you woke up. Hold fast to Jesus is better. And I guarantee, because he has promised that we will, fe- we will get mercy and find grace to help in our time of need, that Jesus will walk with you through whatever darkness you're in. I would say that if your doubts and fears and the cloud of Lacking assurance persists that to let another walk with you. We're not meant to do that alone. We're meant to take these passages and learn them and apply them and use them in community. And so if your doubts persist, perhaps talk to a pastor. Find someone in a home group. Walk with them. Pray with them through what's going on in your life. But the author doesn't leave the audience with a warning. But as he did in chapter 6, he moves to encourage. And so for all the the questions and concerns around the beginning of the portion that we've read, verses 26 kind of through 31, we don't want to miss what remains in chapter 10. So readers are to hold fast to Jesus as better to escape from judgment. They're also to hold fast to Jesus as better to endure their suffering. Listen to what he says in verse 32. But recall the former days. When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So the original audience, here's what's implied, has has heard the gospel and they've responded. They've made open professions of faith. They're standing with the gospel. It's known to the world around them that they're with Christ, that they're in the gospel. That's at least what they're saying And this opened them up to all sorts of perils, all sorts of dangers, all sorts of sufferings, it says, in the plural. They were reproached with affliction. They had hard struggles with sufferings. They were afflicted, or at least they joined with those who were. So they showed some solidarity with one another. And the reality is is that this is not unexpected for those who profess faith in Jesus. Despite what you hear on your, your Christian station or your Christian TV channel that you like to watch, like, Sufferings are to be expected. 
John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. John chapter 16, he says it again, the, in the world you're going to have tribulation. This is like a matter of fact. In the world you're going to have tribulation. First Peter chapter 4 says, don't be surprised at the fiery trouble you're facing, as though something strange were happening to you. Every time I face suffering and trials, I'm like, something strange is happening. And I need First Peter, like, don't be surprised, like, nothing strange is happening. Like, this is the ordinary because I've expected it to not be ordinary. And in their sufferings, here's what they did. They showed faithfulness. They showed solidarity with partners. They said, you're suffering, I'm going to join you in that. Your stuff's being plundered, I'll come with you. Verse 34, it goes on. He said, you had compassion on those in prison. Prison then was, was another way of, of being in a brutal lifestyle. It was brutality. You think of Paul's life. A lot of the stuff that was brutal and often in Paul's life was faced in prison. And so displaying sympathy for those in prison was to identify with them, was to join them in their humiliation, was to join them in their shame, was to join them sometimes in their suffering. So in having compassion on those in prison, they displayed a love for one another and a love for Jesus. And actually they displayed it not just to one another, they displayed it to a world that we're willing to stand together in this. They, they showed the kind of love that Jesus showed us. We read of this in Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality of God a thing to be grasped, but he came and he dwelt with us. And here's these people not in prison going and, and caring, having compassion. They're showing that kind of love, that kind of example. They're following in the line of Christ. They showed their loyalty to Jesus, and they showed it even further, as you see in the end of verse 34, that you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now this puts them in a category already with many of those that we're going to read about in, in Hebrews 11. That they're saying, like, I got a better possession, I'm looking ahead to it, I'm, I'm going to trust in that. But notice a word in verse 34, joyfully. That is, they didn't just endure the plundering of their property, that would be hard enough for us. They joyfully accepted it. Now, to joyfully accept the plundering of your goods is going to have to take a few, few things that you're convicted of, that you're convinced of. That God is sovereign, that all things that are happening for our good, that we trust Him, that He is over all things, that He doesn't approve of evil, but He's not uh, held back by evil. He's doing and conquering all that He needs to do and conquer and accomplish all in this world, and it's His world. There's hope in His faithfulness. All that He said, all that He promised is going to come true. So He can plunder my goods because I have a better possession. I have an abiding one. Plunder it all you will. There's a certainty in his promises. In other words, they were holding fast that Jesus is better. They're saying Jesus is better. He's better than my possessions. He's better than all that this life could offer me. He's better than anything that this world could give. You can put me in prison. You can plunder my things. I'll do it joyfully. I accept those things because I have something better. They were holding on to truths that we see all through the scripture, like in Luke chapter 12, when he says to them that, life's, that one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. Plunder them. That it profits nothing, one who can gain the whole world but loses his soul. Take the world, I'll keep my soul. That's what they're clinging on to. And their grasp of these truths freed them to joyfully accept all their stuff being plundered, to accept their sufferings and their struggles. And doesn't their faithfulness have much to teach us? Should we have to face sufferings like this, how, how will we do it? Well, my hope is that we will be so sure that we have a better and abiding possession that we're free. Free to, as Martin Luther penned, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. Because 
The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Free to endure sufferings and to have joy in it because our great high priest is going to appear one day. And then that day draws near. And then as that day draws near, we know that he is continuing to have enemies put under his feet as we go along. And that he will save those who are waiting eagerly for him. The audience seemed to have showed that kind of freedom and joy. Perhaps in the multiplicity of their sufferings, they're wearing down. I'm tired of my stuff being plundered. I'm tired of visiting that person in prison or in being in prison. So that maybe they're tempted to go the other way. And so the author comes alongside them and encourages them. Listen to what he says in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward... For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, when we think about the the biblical image of the Christian life, we need to hear well that it is not like Disney World, where we're continually thrilled and met with all of our expectations, even exceed all of our expectations of how great things will always be all the time. Uh, the audience of the book of Hebrews wouldn't have identified with that at all. And so we as Western affluent people need to hear the norm of the Christian life is actually more like what they were facing than what we were facing, we are facing. The biblical image, the one that the audience would identify with, has a lot less to do with like maybe Disneyland and and things being great all the time and more to do with some images that you see all through the scripture of, of maybe agriculture, farming, or athletics, racing, Soldiers, battling, exiles, strangers, those are the kind of images that pull up. And all of those images involved suffering. And all of them required endurance through suffering. Try to attack a marathon with an all-out sprint. I've never tried to attack a marathon at all. But if I were to, I don't think that I would try the strategy to just all-out at the beginning. Try to speed the growth season of your crops. I don't think it works. I think it has bad repercussions for you. Try to make things grow faster. Try to, try to win a war in one battle. doesn't work. Endurance is needed. These are the things that they would have needed to know and would have been understood. Like, I'm not in Disneyland. Like, I'm a soldier. We're battling right now. Suffering is all over. Endurance is needed, he says. Endurance is needed to reach the goal. To receive the promises, you want to win the war, you've got to go after it with endurance. You're going to run this marathon, you're going to run this race, it's going to be a long race. Don't sprint all out at the beginning. There's a pace, there's an endurance that you're going to need. There's great reward. At the end, there's a better and abiding possession, but they all await. What's required of us in the middle, what's required of the audience is just keep going. Keep going. Man, how many of us need to hear that? No matter what is going on, you have need of endurance. Keep going. Keep going. The promise is before you. Keep going. Your inheritance is awaiting you. Keep going. You have a better possession. Keep going. You have need of endurance. Keep going. But how does one do that through suffering? How does one have confidence in trials? Verse 37, he quotes from the Old Testament. It says, yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And, he sh- and if he shrinks back, my soul 
has no pleasure in him. This is a mixture of a couple different Old Testament passages, Isaiah chapter 26 and Habakkuk 2. Both of these passages are in the middle of great tension, which the people of God consistently find themselves in the middle of great tension. Here we are, the people of God, we have all these promises, and yet it seems like these promises aren't coming to pass. So in Isaiah, if you've read through the book of Isaiah, you know around this area, it's just judgment, 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 judgment. It's a lot of Isaiah, it's a lot of the prophets. It's judgment on nation after nation after nation after nation around Isaiah chapter 26. And in the middle of God's judgment on the nations, Israel is starting to feel a little bit judged as well because they're in the middle of all sorts of tension. Israel even faces enemies. Israel even faces judgment from the Lord. And the Lord points the people of God, points the prophet Isaiah to a day in the future, a day of deliverance. In fact, it seems as if a one who delivers, one who brings deliverance for them. And so in the middle of their suffering and in their judgment, here's what he gives them. Look forward in faith. Trust in the promises and the faithfulness of God that he will deliver you one day. Habakkuk chapter 2. The Israelites had the Chaldeans, which were used as an instrument by God to judge the people of Israel, to tear down the walls of Jerusalem, to burn the temple, and to take people into exile. Pretty bad judgment. And Hebrews chapter 2 Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk knows that the Chaldeans are going to be used. God prophesies and he says this is what's going to happen. They have impending judgment coming upon them. And as a faithful person of God, he questions God. Rightfully and respectfully, he questions God. How could you do this? How could you use them as an instrument for us, the people of God? And God answers graciously, answers, doesn't give every answer. But one of the answers he gives is encouraging for God's people to wait. Wait a little while, and I'm going to bring about my end. My people will be vindicated in the end, those who trust in me. And so the middle of suffering and judgment, he says, look forward in faith. Don't shrink back. Keep being faithful. Keep going. That's what he says to Isaiah and to Habakkuk. Indeed, you could sum up a lot of the prophets that way. Look forward. Don't shrink back. Keep going. Keep being faithful. I will deliver one day. Keep looking for me. So a very similar message to the message we just read about Don't throw away your confidence. You need endurance. Why do you need these things? Because the coming one will come. But the ultimate day when the Lord returns is is coming. It's nearing. It's approaching. There's a day of salvation coming, he's saying. There's a day of salvation and a day of judgment. Same day. They're coming. So how does one endure until that day with all the sufferings, with all the trials, with all the struggles that are going on? The answer he gives here is by faith. My righteous shall live by faith. Trusting in the promises of God. Sure of the promises of God. Knowing that before the throne my surety stands. That's how you live in the midst of all that's going on. Faith looks forward in certainty to God's ultimate and final deliverance of his people. It looks forward in certainty of God's ultimate judgment that is to come upon all of his enemies and all those who would reject Jesus. And here's what faith does. Faith takes the warnings. It takes the call for endurance. It takes both of those things and it takes them seriously because it knows the day comes near. And faith then starts working its way out in life and how we live. So verse 39 says this, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The need in their tension, 
of the day isn't fully here yet, and we're in prison, and we're suffering, and we have all these trials, the need and the tension of the current age for them and for us is living by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So the right response to the warnings, to sufferings, to the call for endurance is faith. It's holding fast to Jesus as the better one. See what's put in in opposition here is we have faith on one side, and that's put in opposition to shrinking back. Shrinking back, it says, those will be destroyed. They are destroyed. And what's it saying? It's, It's on that ultimate day, those who shrink back are destroyed. That's the judgment they talked about earlier. There's a warning there about shrinking back. That if you do that, you don't have a heart of faith, and that you will face the judgment of God. In opposition to that is those of faith, and they are those who preserve their souls because they're completely reliant upon Jesus. If His promises aren't coming true, we might as well shrink back. If He's not our great high priest, we might as well shrink back. But if we're sure of those things, we'll never shrink back. We will keep going. We have need of endurance. And so those of faith are preserved Because Jesus sits on the throne. It's a throne of grace where we receive mercy, where he gives grace to help in our time of need, in our time of suffering, in our time in need of endurance. He gives all those things. He is our supply. We have faith and trust in him. Those of faith are preserved because Jesus is behind the curtain in the holy places already. And he is the sure and steady anchor for our souls. Everyone who trusts in him has something that already is anchored behind the veil, can't be taken away or moved. No matter what storm blows on the earth, we're secure in heaven. And so the response for us is easy, that we would respond in faith to the living God, that we'd be trusting in and holding fast to Jesus as better, to both escape judgment and endure our suffering. My hope and prayer is that it would be said of all of us, what it says in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Do you trust Jesus? If you've never trusted in Jesus, we would call you to repentance, to turn from your beliefs, to turn from your life that you're living and to a living God, to believe upon Him. But if you have, hold fast. Keep going. Jesus is better. He's better than any temporary ease and comfort and safety and security you could face here. He's better than what might come to those who reject him in judgment. He's better. He himself provides an abiding and a better possession for us. Hold fast to Jesus. We have a better possession. We await reward. And we will receive what is promised. Let us hold fast to him. Before Jesus went to be crucified, he gave a sacred symbol for the people of God that they might remember his faithfulness, that they might remember his promises, that they might remember to hold fast. He gave us what we call the Lord's Supper, where he took the bread after supper and he broke it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take this in remembrance of me. He took a cup and he gave it to them. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take this in remembrance of me. He told them that as often as you take this, you're remembering these things until I come. And so what we do is we take the suppers that we look back. Look back to the work of Christ. We look back to what he has done, what he's accomplished on our behalf through his death, through his resurrection. 
We look to right now and we know that we can hold fast right now because we can cling to Jesus right now, that we can have a a living faith, a faith that's alive right now. We can endure, we can escape right now because we have one who sits at the throne of grace on our behalf and it looks forward. And it says that one day he's coming back and that we're putting all of our surety there. All of our certainty is in these future promises that Jesus is going to do what he promised he would do. And so as we take this supper, we're expressing our faith of what Jesus has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. So if you're a believer, this is a family meal of encouragement, of a a victory meal on the field of battle that we get to enjoy together by faith. So if you're a believer, come and be reminded of these great truths and recommit to holding fast to Jesus better. If you're not a believer, don't take this meal. We want you to take Jesus instead. Turn from your sin and believe upon him for life. And we'll prepare you to take this meal next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reminding us of your faithfulness. Thank you for reminding us of your promises. May we hold fast to them and hold fast to you. God, thank you for telling us how horrific judgment is. Thank you for telling us about the fury of fire. It's needed. We need to hear this. You don't waste words. And so for the unbeliever, I pray that it would bring the right sense of fear and would drive them toward you. And for believers, I I pray that it would bring the right sense of fear and would drive us closer to you. That we might hold fast. That we might trust that Jesus is better than everything in this world and that our possession awaits us and his great reward. Help us hold fast. As we take this meal, may we do so by faith. For whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. So may we come and tear off a piece of the bread and be reminded of your body that was broken. Be reminded of your blood that was poured out that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have a place in heaven because you have shed your blood securing eternal redemption for us. God, would you grow our faith through this meal and through our partaking of it as family. And all of it be honored. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you're a believer, I encourage you to come, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice, and be reminded of the great truths that Jesus has done on your behalf.